SB 1401 for Senator Bradford on College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act. It is a suspense candidate to good Senator's Wade presentation. We'll open up the public testimony. There's nobody here in support. Moderator, anyone on the phone line in support of 1401? Please press 1-0 at this time. Currently nobody in queue. All right, we will go to opposition of 1401. There's nobody in this room. Moderator, is anyone on the phone line opposed to 1401? Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that you can check out. I haven't written in that for over a year now, but I've got some good stuff there. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can send me an email to rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is May 10th, 2022. And as always, there is uh, plenty to talk about. Yesterday, a couple of interesting things happened. First, we had the NCAA Division I Board of Directors coming out with quote-unquote guidance on name, image, and likeness. And that was a process that was initiated a couple of months ago, I guess right after the new constitution was ratified. There were concerns about what was going on in the name, image, and likeness market and whether the no market had crossed the line from legitimate arm's length deals into active recruiting inducements through these collectives and, and booster run organizations. And I'm going to talk about this new guidance in connection with a broader discussion of nil and, and what that market really is, how it came to, to be, and how it has been portrayed in the media. And that's really an important component of analyzing the current state of college sports, the current state of voluntary regulation, and these external regulatory threats, as is always the case when the NCAA puts out something to make it look like they are self-regulating and acting according to their values. It usually amounts to nothing more than smoke and mirrors. And I think the same is true with this guidance. I have uh, looked at what's available online. And really, this guidance does nothing more than refer to and restate existing NCAA regulations on boosters and trying to limit the role of boosters in the money machine 
So <laughs> it's just a stakeholder beneficiaries don't want boosters involved. They don't want agents involved. They don't want really the third party nil companies involved. They don't want anybody involved who can interfere with the revenue stream. And the problem that NCAA has always had is that when it comes to these third parties, they really don't have any direct regulatory authority because those uh, people, the boosters, the agents, the nil companies, they're not members of the NCAA. The NCAA has no direct regulatory authority over them. And one of the dysfunctions in the business and regulatory model, and this goes to the heart of the equity issues and the social justice issues, is that because the NCAA can't regulate third parties in any meaningful way, they over-regulate the ever-living hell out of the people who are under their jurisdiction. And that obscene over-regulation of the people that they can control, namely the athletes, the revenue-producing athletes who provide the value in the product leads to this corrupt infractions and enforcement program where you have asymmetrical warfare on revenue producing athletes and you have the NCAA coming in and bringing the hammer down on innocent athletes in these show trials that are intended primarily to scare the member institutions and the athletes. That is in large part why the NCAA is in the position that it's in today, that dysfunctional regulatory model and punishment model falls disproportionately on African-American men in football and more particularly in men's basketball. And it was that James Weissman case at the University of Memphis that had Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn so upset with the NCAA. And I think that people like Blackburn intuitively understand how unjust that whole regulatory model is. And that's why she has been really aggressive in, in that component of the NCAA's regulatory authority, its infractions and enforcement process, in uh, speaking out and speaking against the NCAA and calling out Mark Emmert. But when you read this guidance from the Division One Board of Directors, they are just doubling down on on that same philosophy of doing everything in their power to bring the hammer down on the people that they can control because the people that they can't control are the ones who are threatening the financial model. And that's what this comes down to. It's all about the money. So I'm going to talk about that in the context of a broader discussion of nil. And that's going to be a big discussion. That's going to be a multi-episode discussion. But it's so important because this nil marketplace has resurrected many of the boogie men that the NCAA and Power Five threw up to the Senate beginning in 2019 and is going to be the justification for their re-engagement with the Senate that really began last week with that meeting between Power Five commissioners George Klyavkov of the Pac-12 and Greg Sankey of the SEC with Senators Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington, and Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. And we're beginning to see the framework for that re-engagement. So the other thing that happened yesterday, and the thing that I'm going to talk about in this episode, is that the California Senate's Appropriation Committee took up the California revenue sharing bill that I, I talked about in episode 113 and then in episode 115. And the name of that bill is College Athlete Race and Gender Equity Act. And I laid out the basic contours of that bill in episode 113. 
2015. But when I was asking the question, is revenue sharing politically viable right now? And then talked about it more in the values context in episode 115 and this false dilemma, this false binary that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have created at the values level between gender equity interests and the interests of revenue producing athletes. And it's just a really distressing false narrative. And uh, in this episode, in my discussion of where this bill stands now in the California Senate, I want to stay with the values theme. And that's really where I started and where I want to land. And we're having to read some tea leaves here because as I'm going to explain, the legislative process in the California legislature is very complicated. And when it gets to the appropriations level, it uh, becomes surreal. So I'm going to talk in a little bit of detail about the life of this bill and the process that it has been through and some general features of California lawmaking that I think are unique because of California's size and power and the sheer scale of the legislation that runs through the Senate and the Assembly. So what I want to do first is just give a brief thumbnail sketch of what this bill is, what it does. It's a refresher. You can also go back to episode 113. Then I want to talk about the journey that this bill has been on. And then I want to land with this appropriations committee and this really interesting and I think unique feature of the California legislative process through the use of what is called a suspense file. And it is really a black hole that most legislative proposals in in the California legislature fall into on both chambers, both the Senate and the House. We're going to talk about it in the context of the Senate because that's where this revenue sharing bill has been introduced and and discussed. But this suspense file takes all this legislation and dumps it into this star chamber like process that is completely opaque. It is off the record. And these bills that are dumped into the suspense file are not public discussions and they're outside of the scope of sunshine laws, apparently. And then some bills survive that process. Others die very quietly. And I'm going to talk about that in some detail. But all this is going to run through the a values level. And because we have so little information to go on in this process, it's very difficult to tell what may happen. And we'll know probably in a month or so whether or not this revenue sharing bill makes it out of this Byzantine process and onto the Senate floor. So uh, this bill is sponsored by Stephen Bradford, a uh, California state senator who was one of the co-sponsors of California's name, image, and likeness law, SB 206, the Fair Pay to Play Act, which really put the wheels in motion for the nil initiatives and other states started to follow suit. Bradford is African-American, and in fact, he is the only African-American man in the entire California Senate. And when I was looking through the, the Senate roster, I was really surprised to see that. And this uh, revenue bill that Bradford has proposed takes the athlete compensation issue to the next level. And instead of having deals with third parties for name, image, and likeness where the schools are completely outside of that marketplace, or they're supposed to be, the revenue sharing component requires the institutions in the state of California, if they meet certain revenue thresholds, to share some of that revenue with the athletes who earn it. 
That's hardly a radical proposition in the United States of America, but in this upside-down, inside-out value system, a narrative setting that the NCAA and Power Five have been so successful at for decades, sharing the revenues with the people who actually earned it is deemed un-American, and we're threatening uh, gender equity, and we're threatening our Olympic development program, and how unpatriotic to pay these athletes. It's so ridiculous on its face, but those narratives are deeply embedded in the psyche of American decision makers when it comes to the regulation of college sports that they simply can't break free from it. They're prisoners to these false narratives. And that really came through, I think, in the debate through the committee process on this California revenue sharing bill. But under this bill, you look at revenue on a sport by sport basis. And if a particular sport has revenue, if it's not a complete money loser, then you take half of that revenue and you would use it to calculate a potential distribution to the athletes in that sport. And so you take, you know, 50% is off limits. So half of it would just stay uh, in the normal budgeting process, but half of any revenue would be available for distribution. And in that half, you would deduct out from that the total costs of all the scholarships in that sport. And the difference between the cost of those scholarships and that 50% of revenue is the amount of money that would be available for distribution among the players in that sport if certain conditions are met. As a practical matter, what that means is that there will only be revenue distributions to these athletes in football and uh, men's basketball at the big time schools. And there are four power five schools in the state of California. You've got uh, UCLA, USC, Cal Berkeley, and Stanford. It's unlikely that schools outside of those four schools are going to have any products that generate any meaningful net revenue for distribution. And those distributions would go into an educational trust fund, a degree completion fund. And an athlete who graduates within six years of starting school and has some revenue put into that trust fund in in a sport would be able to get a distribution. So the bill has an educational purpose, and that was one of the selling points that you had to graduate. It's tied into academic progress and academic success. And then the other feature of this bill, which made it more palatable, I think, is that this revenue sharing framework would not result in athletes being employees of the university. It did not create an employer-employee relationship. And that is the hill that the NCAA and the Power Five are willing to fight and die on. And their amateurism-based compensation limits have been built in large part around this no-employee line and the conceptualization of the student-athlete that I've talked so much about. So this bill was designed to be politically palatable, which is why I named or talked about episode 113 in the context of political viability. And the inclusion of the gender equity component, I think, was a part of that. And that component is gone. There were some gender equity provisions in the initial version of the bill that would have imposed some severe penalties on athletics administrators who didn't comply with Title it didn't really do anything meaningful in my judgment. I believe it was window dressing to allay the concerns that would invariably come from decision makers on the impact of this revenue sharing bill on 
Title IX and gender equity issues. And that's really where they landed. But as I discussed in episode 113, Title IX is Title IX is Title IX. And it has its requirements. It has its penalties. It has its remedies. And the fluff that was built around gender equity in the original version of this bill really did nothing more than restate Title IX requirements and then added some additional penalties that really were overkill. And I think that is why the proponents of this bill and Senator Bradford pulled those provisions from the bill. So the bill no longer has these gender equity provisions. It is a revenue sharing bill only. That means that looking at what's left of this bill, despite its title, it still has gender equity in the title. But what's really left of this bill is an emphasis on the laborers who underwrite this entire business model, and they are disproportionately African-American. That is an unshakable reality in the business model of big-time college sports. And I've talked about this time and time again in the context of Miles Brandt's collegiate model, which mandates the maximum exploitation of revenue in football men's basketball, and then uh, taking that revenue and sending it to downstream beneficiaries, quote unquote, participation opportunity beneficiaries in non-revenue Olympic and female sports who are overwhelmingly white. So you have a massive regressive transfer of wealth from largely black laborers to largely white beneficiaries. And that is the way that this business model has been propagandized. And when you start speaking honestly about the true inequities in that system and looking at trying to put some money into the pockets of the people who actually earn it, you have some of these decision makers reflexively screaming bloody murder because they think that it's going to be the death of our Olympic sports movement and the death of gender equity. And as I discussed in those values episodes, that is a false dilemma. It is a false binary. And it has not only the true business model turned upside down and inside out, but it turns basic American principles of freedom and liberty upside down and inside out. So I think this bill was designed to try to refocus on the true inequities in the system. But when you look at the committee process and the concerns that were raised and where this bill may be headed now, I think you see the power of those false narratives. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this bill. And I guess one more thing before I get to how the sausage is made in the California legislature. This revenue sharing bill is really the only state revenue sharing bill that is in play right now. In episode 113, I talked about this New York bill that was introduced in 2019. And the NCAA's name, image, and likeness federal and state legislation working group pointed to that as an existential threat and a justification for for uh, federal protections and immunities like uh, preemption of state laws, antitrust immunity to take federal courts out of the regulatory field, and then a provision that athletes can't be employees. And that was viewed as an extreme outlier in 2019. Then you have the Athletes' Bill of Rights that was introduced in 2020. The lead sponsors were Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Cory Booker of New Jersey. That has a revenue-sharing component, but it is a wide-ranging bill that addresses issues outside of revenue-sharing. And it really hasn't gotten a lot of of attention and I think was viewed in the mosaic of legislation that was proposed in 2020 and 2021 that was ostensibly related to nil. It was viewed as an outlier as well. And these Republican-sponsored bills that would end the athletes' rights movement were the ones that were given priority in the media and the NCAA and Power Five spoke 
most people. So this is an interesting approach. And although it's not novel, it is really a standalone initiative that other states, to, to, at least to the best of my understanding, aren't really talking about right now. So I have listened to all three hearings that have occurred in three committees, the Education Committee, where this bill originated, and then the Judiciary Committee, and then the Appropriations Committee. And there was some substantive discussion in the first two committees, and I made transcripts of, of those discussions and have been through them to try to tease out these values issues and the other concerns. And then that opening montage that you heard was the entirety of the discussion on this bill in the Appropriations Committee. And it was about a minute. And I actually took out some long pauses there, and I'm going to explain exactly what what happened there. But it, it was reduced to about a minute of total engagement. That is all this bill got in the Appropriations Committee. And then it was sent into this black hole known as the quote-unquote suspense file. And I have to confess that I was not aware of this whole suspense file process when I was talking about this uh, before the hearing in appropriations. And I'm tuning into the hearing, and there were about 100 bills, over 100 bills that were listed for the Appropriations Committee yesterday. And I'm thinking, how in the hell are they going to get through all these bills? And then I'm listening, and they are just flying through these bills. They're churning out these bills and sending them into the suspense file faster than the Waffle House turns out waffles. I mean, it was uh, amazing, an amazing process. And so as I'm listening to this and hearing virtually zero discussion, I'm furiously researching this whole suspense process and realized that this appropriations committee operates like a star chamber, really, when it comes to a truly substantive review of these bills and the impact, the financial impact of these bills on the overall budgeting process. And there's some legitimate explanations for for why the state of California uses this process, but there are also some downsides. Because as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, if this is the extent of the public debate, boy, we got a real problem here in terms of transparency and sunshine and accountability. And this chair of the Appropriations Committee may be more powerful powerful than the governor of California because he wields extraordinary power behind the scenes. So I want to talk as quickly as I can about the process and why I think it's set up this way. But you have to remember that California is the largest economy in the United States. It has about three and a half trillion in gross state product. And that makes it the biggest in the United States. And it makes it one of the biggest in the world. So if if California were an independent nation, it would rank between Germany and India uh, among the world's largest economies. Germany's number four, India's number six. So California has the fifth largest economy of any nation state in the world. It is massive. And it also processes an enormous volume of legislative proposals. And the way that these bills are processed has a a cookie cutter feel to it, an assembly line feel to it. After following this bill through the committee process, I was shocked, quite frankly, at how little debate there was and how generalized the debate was. This was not a thorough process. This was a process designed to get these bills through the system in an efficient and defensible way. And they meet that first criteria. They're very, very 
very efficient. It was really like a military operation and the efficiency of getting these bills through. But I'm not quite sure how it rates on the defensibility standard. So let me just talk about this process and then I will bring it back around to the values issues that were raised where things sit right now. So the first stop was the education committee, seven members, and it cleared education by a four to zero to three, four yes, zero no, three abstentions, largely along party lines. There was one Democrat who voiced opposition and he ultimately abstained, but he had some concerns. And the basic concerns, there were, I would say, three basic concerns. One is the math, the money, the accounting. The formula wasn't really spelled out, and I think that caused a lot of senators some concern. Then the Title IX gender equity issues, that came up time and time again for legislators on both sides of the fence. And then there was a concern about unintended consequences, and and that came up again and again. And I'm going to talk about all the narratives, those express narratives, and then some implied concerns that were raised. But the party line issue is the same issue we've seen in Congress. It became a partisan discussion on athletes' rights, and the Republicans were all on board with protective federal legislation that would shut down the athletes' rights rights movement. Democrats were in favor of a meaningful bill that would protect athletes and guarantee some basic rights there. That basic dynamic played out in the California legislative process. So it goes through education, then it goes to judiciary. There are 11 members of the judiciary, and the vote there was nine yes, one no, one abstention. So between those two committees, you had 18 total senators looking at this. And I should also note that there are only 40 state senators in the California Senate. 31 are Democrats. Nine are Republican, and the numbers are similarly skewed in the assembly, the other chambers. So you have Democrats in California with a very firm grip on power in the state legislature. And of the 18 senators that voted on this bill through the Education and Judiciary Committees combined, you had a total of 13 yes votes, all Democrat. You had one no vote. Republican, and then you had four abstentions, uh, three Republicans and one Democrat. And as I have said before, I think those abstentions are no votes. So if you're just counting votes, that looks pretty good. If you're a proponent of this bill and you just need 21 votes to get to the majority threshold, if the bill makes it to the floor of the Senate. And, And as I'm listening and watching these hearings, it occurred to me how short they were on this bill. So you had about 35 to 40 minutes of total time for each committee. And then you only had about 25 or 30 minutes of actual substantive discussion of these bills. So you had less than an hour between these two committees of meaningful substantive discourse on the merits of this bill. And I calculated the the discussion in the Judiciary Committee at about 23 minutes. That's nothing for a bill of this magnitude. And I'm thinking, not knowing about how the appropriations process really works, I'm thinking, wow, this thing may not hit a snag. And you had those three issues, the, the accounting, the math, how do you calculate revenues? Then you had the Title IX gender equity issues, then you had the unintended consequences issues that came up as three broad themes. And again, those were expressed by Democrat senators as well. But I'm thinking, well, 
you know, this is just going to be a rubber stamp in appropriations. And then we hit the suspense file buzzsaw. So let me talk a little bit about the suspense file process, what it means and what it may tell us and tie that back into a discussion of the values issues that arose from the presentation of this bill and the limited debate. This referral to appropriations really isn't designed to be a policy debate. It is designed to see what the impact of that legislation is on the overall California budget. And in order for a bill to be eligible for the quote-unquote suspense file, it has to meet certain financial impact thresholds. And that threshold is very low. I think it's 50000 maybe, something like that, or maybe it's 150000 It's a low threshold on the Senate side, which means that almost every bill that comes to appropriations would be eligible for the suspense file. And if a bill is eligible, the sponsor of that bill can essentially waive any meaningful discussion on the bill. And uh, that's what most senators do. And it's this very brief process that has very limited discussion. They allow people who are actually at the Appropriations Committee hearing to say what they want the the committee to do. And then they have call-ins. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that when I get to the values discussion. They have call-ins. And and then they do pro-con, and then it goes right into the suspense file. And that's what you heard in that opening montage and how quickly it happens. And that's where it gets really interesting because then a bill is in the star chamber. And for a few weeks in May, the appropriations committee chair, in this case, Anthony Portentino, he is a Democrat. He's a very powerful player here. You have the appropriations chair. You probably have the vice chair, who is a Republican. Then you have the party leaders uh, for both the majority and the minority in that star chamber room. And then you may have uh, a few other senators and some policy people and some committee representatives who are in a discussion on these bills. And the purpose of this process and the defensible component of it is that when you have the amount of money that's flowing through the California budget, they don't want to be doing bills one at a time that could wind up costing a lot of money and stretch the budget. So they want to have all these bills in one pot, look at them holistically and look at the mosaic of these bills and really prioritize the bills, both from a spending standpoint and I think from a policy standpoint. But it gives this small group of people enormous power and What's interesting about how external commentators have described this process is, is that once the the bills make it into that suspense file and is in this star chamber decision making, which has no public accountability, that's where the real influence peddling occurs. And you have all the special interests coming in to try to twist the arms of the people that are in that small room of decision makers. There's no telling what the hell goes on there. And there's no way to figure it out because none of those processes are open to the public or subject to public disclosure requirements. So it's a really strange environment. And so, yeah, it makes sense logistically. It makes sense in terms of budgeting priorities for the state of California, which is uniquely situated because of the amount of money that, that runs through the legislature every year. But for people who are interested in a particular bill, there's very little rhyme or reason in their judgment to what bills actually 
actually make it out of the suspense file. So what this the star chamber does is they look at all these bills and then the ones that they have prioritized as worthy and meeting the budgetary criteria and the impact criteria, those bills get sent back out of the suspense file and onto the Senate floor for a full debate and vote. And every year, there is all of this tension that's built around what is called suspense file day. And I'm looking at an article from last year in the this process in 2021. It's, it's on May 21st, and it talks about this suspense file issue. And it's titled, Suspense File Day, Which Controversial Bills Did California Legislators Kill? And I saw a couple of other articles along those lines from outlets that cover California politics. And the themes there are that you just have no idea how the sausage is made and the bills that make it out are head scratchers, and so are the bills that don't make it out. And the one of the things that this author talks about is how that process, that uh, star chamber decision-making process, because it's so influenced by political considerations, in addition to the objective criteria that they're supposed to apply from a budgeting standpoint, you have some of the uh, most controversial but important bills that make it through the policy committees and go into a appropriations that never make it out of the suspense file. And there was a suggestion that the governors of California have used that process to bury legislation that they simply didn't want to deal with from a public relations standpoint. And they got a quote from Jerry Brown when he left the governor's office. He said, yeah, he made good use of that suspense file to avoid some sticky issues. So that's one purpose that it's put to. And then you also have tit-for-tat politics and you have revenge scenarios and all these things that this article talks about. But that operates in the dark, and that's the important thing. And so when looking at this revenue sharing bill, it's really important to look at the values collision that was presented at the policy hearings in education and judiciary. But there are seven members of this appropriations committee. It's a very small committee. And it's also important to note that Stephen Bradford is on the Appropriations Committee. So the sponsor of the bill is also on this Appropriations Committee. But of the seven members on that committee, five of them had heard this bill in a prior committee. That means they sat, in addition to appropriations, they also sat on either the Education or Judiciary Committee. And there are four Democrats, one Republican, and the all four of the Democrats voted yes out of their respective committees. And the only no vote through that entire process was from Brian Jones, a Republican, and he sat on that education committee in addition to appropriations. But when you look at the comments of those five legislators in the policy committee process, you see that they all had concerns about the bill for, for a variety of reasons, but the two most common concerns were we need to see the numbers, we need to see the math, we need to see the spreadsheet in terms of how we're calculating revenues. And from a value standpoint, they had gender equity concerns. They all mentioned Title IX and gender equity. So I think what I want to do is just give you a couple of examples of the pushback from Democrat senators that I think help tap into the the concerns that they were saying outright, but then also a couple of, I think, underlying themes that were not expressed that I think are driving some 
questions about whether this type of approach is is going to be politically viable. Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about the obvious pressure that's going to be put on the uh, appropriations suspense file team behind the scenes through the usual suspects, the NCAA lobbyists, the Power Five lobbyists, the in-state lobbyists. So I'm going to use two examples of how the Democrat senators saw this. And I, I think these are representative of how the, the Democrats saw this bill. There was one Democrat on the Education Committee, I think his name was Glazer, who went on a long-winded and repetitive critique of uh, the equity issues. And it was built around, really, who, who benefits here? And is everybody benefiting? And if it's just a small group of people, then why are we doing this? And, and all this kind of stuff. But by and large, the, the Democrats were pretty low-key. And they said, I'm going to vote this thing uh, through committee. I'm going to give you a yes vote, but. And, and there were uh, a few buts. And let's start with the, the chairperson of the Judiciary Committee. And his name is Tom Umberg. And uh, he was very brief. He said, I want to go ahead and underline the concerns. I'm going to vote I, but I have concerns with respect to Title IX and its impact on women and their ability to just their ability to make sure that sports are both funded for women athletes and available to women athletes. And he says, and I know you're committed to making sure that is the case. And then uh, Bradford comes in and wants to reemphasize that this bill will have no impact on Title IX, that it's not the intent of the proponents of this bill to do anything that's going to harm Title IX or gender equity. And then there were some other concerns raised by a senator and, and judiciary, and, and this was a woman. And so I think it's important to get the female perspective, and she's a Democrat. Her name is Anna Caballera. And I, I think she really articulates well this ambivalence that I think a lot of decision makers have when confronted with this false dilemma, this false binary of the interests of black men in revenue producing sports and women and other Olympic sport athletes in non-revenue sports who are disproportionately white. And then she was also personally committed to the education issues and educational outcomes and the educational exploitation of revenue-producing athletes. And I think those three themes were bouncing off each other as she was trying to articulate how she felt about this bill. And it was really interesting. So Senator Caballero starts off praising the bill and its commitment to education. And she notes that she's concerned that a lot of athletes in the California system, particularly athletes of color, are not graduating at acceptable rates. And I think she's talking there about the revenue-producing athletes. She doesn't say that explicitly, but I think that's what she meant. And then she talks about the revenue split. That's the way she thinks about it. The sports that generate revenue, the ones that don't. And she says, if you're in a sport that's a non-revenue generating sport, then your athletes are not going to benefit because there won't be money. There won't be revenue. Am I correct? And then Bradford says, yeah, pretty much. That's the way that this bill works. And then Cavallaro comes back and says, I'm going to support your bill today, but I've gotten a bunch of comments in opposition from people that work in the university system. And I think the issue regarding Title IX is that the women's sports programs don't generate revenue. And that's where you get 
into the unequal. And then she says with emphasis, it's going to need to be resolved at some point. I just think it's got to be resolved. And then she comes back around to education. It seemed to me that that's really where her heart was in this discussion and that the tie to academic outcomes and graduation was really important to her. And she says that she wants there to be a commitment from the universities that they're going to get their students to graduate. And then she said, I think it's fundamental. She says, and this is a paraphrase, if they're not going to graduate, then why are they going to college? Then she says, we're just using them and then moving on. And that's a great observation. But then she pivots back to the equity issues. And she says, while I do want to support the athletes that are in the revenue generating category, I also want to support athletes that are not in the revenue generating categories. And she says, I think the fight for women to be treated equally is really important. And then she says, I really appreciate what you're trying to do here. And then she closes it out with this, just to reiterate, the unintended consequences could impact women. And so the, the reason I chose that quote is because she brings in so many really important themes there. And I think she, her expression of the issues and her concerns really reflects the success with which the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been in creating this false binary, this false dilemma between the interests of revenue-producing athletes in football, men's basketball, and then female athletes and the potential unintended consequences. So she wants to support everyone, but she can't reconcile it in her mind because that's not the way she's been conditioned to think about it. And that is so, so important because I think you see that very same sentiment in the United States Senate, not just the California Senate, but the United States Senate. And those are the issues that I think moderate Democrat women, particularly those on the Commerce Committee, are going to have when they're looking at any bill that relates to the regulation of college sports that impacts the flow of money or that impacts the interests of the various athlete stakeholders. And it is a difficult nut to crack because of the persistence of those false narratives and those false dilemmas. And I think it's also important to reiterate at this point that the reason these comments are so valuable, what Senator Caballero had to say was really important, is that this was in the context of a bill that was actually being voted on. It wasn't a mere hearing where a U.S. Uh, Senate committee is exercising oversight responsibility, as was the case in all these hearings in 2020 and 2021, mostly in the Commerce Committee. This was an actual hearing at the state level where the decision makers were required to cast a vote, and they had to think about it in a more serious way, I think, than you might at an oversight hearing. So if this is a bellwether for how uh, female Democrats see the issues when it comes to having money flow to the athletes who actually generate it, I think what you see is some really powerful resistance there. And it's another reason that I have been saying, despite a lot of commentary to the contrary, that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries may have a better shot at protective federal legislation in Congress than most people think. And then there's another thing I think that it's important to consider when we look at this from a values standpoint and this revenue sharing component. And that is the values environment that existed in 2019 when this whole discussion about athlete-friendly legislation at the state level began with uh, SB 206 and the Fair Pay to Play Act and what exists today in the post-Austin, post-NIL debacle, post-transfer market. When 
California's state nil law was being debated in 2019, you really didn't have an organized pushback by the NCAA. The NCAA came in and basically said, our way or the highway, this bill's bad news and it's going to ruin college sports. And if necessary, we will file a federal lawsuit under the Dormant Commerce Clause to shut it down. The NCAA wasn't trying to use any values-based responses to name, image, and likeness. And it was a while before they commandeered the nil discussion to try to make it appear as if they intended to do something meaningful on nil, while all along they were trying to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would have given them the authority to do nothing on nil. But all these narratives, these narratives that are hostile to name, image, and likeness that evolved through the NCAA Power Fives campaign in the Senate really didn't exist in 2019. And what you got from the NCAA was the same militant opposition to nil that they demonstrated during the O'Bannon antitrust suit. And it was all about amateurism, amateurism, amateurism. And after Austin, the NCAA lost that talking point. So it has shifted narratives as it does. And it is now really drilling down hard on this divisive gender equity Title IX narrative. And the power Five and the NCAA, to a lesser extent, have employed their minions out in the sports media and commentariat to pump all of these false narratives around displacement and gender equity and Title IX. So you've had this massive propaganda campaign, a multifaceted, multi-front propaganda campaign. So it's a really interesting evolution in the values environment that exists right now. And I would say, having heard the values-based concerns of the Democrat women, and, and that's really what I'm focusing on here because that's what the NCAA and Power Five are going to be focusing on when they go back to the U.S. Senate, to the Commerce Committee. But when you look at the concerns of the female Democrats in the California Senate, it appears that they have bought into these false narratives. And I think they just don't know how to resolve those conflicts as they exist in the spring and summer of 2022. And I think those were reflected pretty clearly by a Senator Caballero's comments. So that, that's going to be tricky terrain for the athletes' rights advocates moving forward, whether it's in state legislatures or Congress. And in addition to the gender-related false narratives, there were a couple of other unstated narratives that I think operated just beneath the surface that serve, in, in my judgment, to delegitimize the interests of the black male laborers in football and men's basketball. The first came through the questioning of Senator Glazer, a Democrat who I think was opposed to this bill. He voted to abstain, but I think he, he really opposed this bill. And that was in the Education Committee. But Glazer was basically saying, this is only going to benefit a small group of athletes. I think that was implied in some of the comments of Senator Caballero. But Glazer really drilled down on that. And he was saying, look, if there are no consequences to the vast majority of schools because you don't have any products that actually generate any net revenue to be distributed, then why are we even talking about this? And that is uh, what I call the de minimis argument. And it is a way to delegitimize 
demoralize the laborers in big-time college sports. And this ties into some of the other corrosive narratives that I think have uncomfortable racial connotations. And those include, oh, look, these guys are going to make a, a bunch of money when they go pro, and it's just a small handful. So let's not worry about their interests. Let's worry about the interests of the beneficiaries of the revenue that they generate. And that has gotten a free pass because these issues have not really been couched historically through the lens of civil rights and uh, social justice. So that just uh, seamlessly weaves its way into the narrative and people intuitively think, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I think this notion that there is just a, a small impact here on a small group of athletes who are probably going to be making a very nice living with their athletic skill, talent, and labor. And a related narrative, false narrative, that again, I think has uncomfortable racial connotations here, is that, look, these athletes have so much and they get all of these amazing benefits and it's really not fair. That goes to the fairness issue and this false dilemma between the interests of non-revenue Olympic sports on the one hand and revenue sports on the other. These guys are treated like kings and they're treated like celebrities and they have these Taj Mahal facilities. And I've talked about that false narrative because it really is a very low bar. Looking at the interests of the people who underwrite this $15 billion a year industry through the lens of what they didn't have before than what their true value is. But uh, Glazer used both of those narratives. And I think that they were pretty effective. And I think that intuitively, a lot of people see it that way. And then the, the second issue, and I think this is increasingly powerful, and this is in part a byproduct of the uh, compliant sports media creating the sky is falling narratives about this less regulated name, image, and likeness market. And that is uh, what I call the nil wall. And what I mean by that is that there are a lot of people out there who are looking at the chaos that is being generated and I think ginned up by in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to justify draconian federal legislation. But they're looking at that and they're saying, wait a minute, these guys are getting all kinds of money here and they don't need anything else. And that fails to distinguish the nil market from true compensation or true revenue sharing. Because the nil market is with third parties. Does The money doesn't come from the institutions that are the primary beneficiaries of the revenue producing athletes' labor. So this revenue sharing bill really has virtually nothing to do with nil, but a lot of people think in their minds in this kind of uh, fuzzy, abstract way about the interests of revenue-producing athletes that, look, they have this nil thing. They've been fighting for this nil thing. Now they haven't. Why don't they just sit down and shut up and enjoy all this money they're getting that they probably don't deserve anyway? That's the implied message here. And then discussions about true compensation, about athletes as employees or this revenue-sharing bill, which at least taps into the pot of money that the institutions benefit from. That's a non-starter because we don't need that now. We simply don't need it because nil takes care of everything. So the nil wall, it means that these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries believe that these athletes are treated so well, they have so much, they keep asking for more, and they're getting more, and it's time to just draw a line in the sand. And we're done with this. Now let's put some reasonable restrictions on this, and let's move forward, and we can rid ourselves of all of this existential anxiety about the future of college sports. Those are 
are powerful narratives. And this nil wall, I think, is also playing out in the, the re-engagement with Congress, and it's going to be a factor there. I think you're going to hear some of that. I don't know how direct it's going to be, but you're going to hear some of that, I think, when the next hearing occurs. And there will be hearings, uh, no doubt, in Senate Commerce. And with this new nil marketplace, I think you're going to hear that kind of argument. And that is really unfortunate because it takes off the table the true athletes' rights that need to be addressed and recognizing honestly the relationship between the institutions and the athletes. It is an employer-employee relationship. And if they get that status, then they can get all the benefits and protections that employees would have. And then we can also start talking intelligently about health and safety issues, some of the most important issues that get omitted in all this brouhaha about name, image, and likeness and this out-of-control market. Some of the most important things that really, I think, are only going to come through the recognition of these athletes as employees. It's only going to be through that kind of reform that we're really going to see movement in areas that matter as much as money. And that is the health and safety of these athletes, particularly the athletes in in football and and other sports where you have uh, really high levels of contact and also sports where you have a, a higher incidence of lifelong injuries. Those are really important things I think that have gotten swept aside in in this name, image, and likeness debate. And if we stop at the nil wall, if we put up this nil wall and we just all run into it and say, okay, this is as far as we can go, then I think we have really sold the athletes, all athletes, not just revenue producing athletes, but all athletes. I think we've sold them short. So uh, a couple of real quick things to close this out. One, I want to talk about the organized opposition that came through with respect to this bill. And you had a representative of the University of California system. There are 10 state universities in the University of California system, including the four Power Five schools. And a gentleman uh, called in to voice his opposition, and it didn't take a no position, but had concerns and, and requested that those concerns be looked into. And those concerns all relate to money. And, and these people are making the same ridiculous arguments about displacement and this is going to be the death of Olympic and women's sports, all the propaganda. And that's going to be the uh, crux of the lobbying campaign behind the scenes now that this bill is in the uh, Star Chamber suspense file. Those people are going to be lobbying like crazy. But what was interesting about that particular opposition and that intervention is that the, the head of the California university system now is Michael Drake. And if that name is familiar to you, it's because he was the former president of Ohio State University. And while he was at OSU, he was the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors. And he was the face of this name, image, and likeness movement starting in 2019. And when you go back to the website, the NCAA website from 2019 and into 2020, in their little link about taking action, I think that was called taking action on name, image, and likeness, modernizing name, image, and likeness, part of that whole campaign that still to this day hasn't come to fruition because the NCAA hasn't changed a single word of a single rule relevant to name, image, and likeness. And this guidance that came out yesterday doesn't change a single word. It is just a restatement of existing rules that the NCAA has chosen not to enforce since July 1st of twenty twenty. One. But Michael Drake was the face of that initiative, and he was the one making all these proclamations, and he was issuing the statements. So you can rest assured that Michael Drake 
understands all of these issues and that the opposition at the state level through, from, from the Power Five schools, actually three of the of four Power Five schools, Stanford's private, not part of the system. But the schools that are going to be most impacted are going to be uh, UCLA, USC, and Cal Berkeley. And these committees receive what's called a bill analysis. And I talked a little bit about that in the Education and Judiciary Committees. The Appropriations Committee was more focused on money. And the athletes and, and Bradford didn't really have a lot to say about how the money would, would work and how the math would work. The California system came in and projected that among the, the 10 schools in that system, the total cost to the system would be about $35 million a year, which when you spread across those 10 schools, isn't a whole lot of money. And it, I think, would be about what you would see a football coach's annual salary or a basketball coach's annual salary in the Power Five. So not that great of an impact, but they're muddying the waters and this is going to be fiscal calamity and, and all this garbage. But that opposition is going to be well coordinated with the Power Five interests, with the NCAA interests, and their broader campaign that's going to run through the United States Senate to end the athletes' rights movement. And so I want to close this out by landing back with this suspense file and this star chamber that's going to be looking at all these bills. And when it comes to this revenue sharing bill, it's going to be real interesting to to see what happens on the backside. I mean, again, we don't know what's going to happen there, but it's not clear that Portentino is on board with this. He didn't offer any substantive comments to this bill. Bradford's on the committee, on the Appropriations Committee, so there may be some deference there. But you're going to have the Republican interests uh, sitting in that room and the special interests that are uh, are twisting arms coming in full force to stop this thing in its tracks. And if uh, one justification for the suspense file system is to bury bills that are too politically controversial and too hot to handle, that could happen with this bill. So if this bill doesn't make it out of committee, I think it would be reasonable to conclude that those hot button issues simply weren't issues that the California legislature wanted to make a binding public decision on. So we'll see. And I think that uh, suspense file day you know, the, the big reveal of what bills made it out of this crazy process. It's going to be, I think, by the end of the month, if I understood this article correctly, the one that really talked about the details of this process. So we should know soon. If it doesn't make it out, it can always be run back through the process next year. So we'll see. I sure would love to be a fly on the wall when they discuss this bill in the suspense file star chamber. All right. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologue. Take care.